0: I'm Julian G. Simmons. This is Talking About Our Generation. For those of you who are already part of the Talking About Our Generation family, welcome back. And for those of you who are new to our podcast, welcome. This podcast is all about connection, sharing, caring, communicating. And this episode is the first in our series on the state of civility in America. Surveys, including the one we're conducting on our website, make it painfully clear that civility is on the decline. We've all experienced it. Seen the videos or read the stories about the shocking rise of rudeness in our country over the past few years. Bad behavior towards flight attendants, customers screaming obscenities at store employees who politely ask them to wear a mask, or drivers blithely cruising through stop signs, and much, much worse. Remember when common decency, good manners, being considerate, caring for others, being compassionate, civility, was more the norm than it is today? Yeah, so do we. Today's guest is a woman who embodies all of these qualities. Katherine Ryan Hyde is the New York Times best selling writer of Pay It Forward, which many of you, I'm sure, know and may have even practiced yourself. She's also the author of more than 40 other novels, including her latest, Boy Underground, which was just released. All of Catherine's books follow a common thread of civility, and I think there's a lot we can all learn from Catherine. So listen in, maybe learn something new, and then let us know what you think. Here's my interview with Catherine Ryan Hyde. Catherine Ryan Hyde, welcome to Our Generation* thank you. So nice to have you with us. It's nice to be here. I think I've always been part of your generation, haven't I? Well, you have actually. Um, (laughs) First of all, just so people know, if they don't know who you are, which I think a lot of people do, you've written more than 40 books. You're a New York Times bestselling author. Let's just talk a little bit about your background now. First of all, a little transparency. You and I know each other for For a long time. A long time since high school.
1: Been at high school, I think. So I would have been about probably 14 or something like that. Right, right. Maybe even 13. That's right.
0: So you and I have known each other for all these years. Funny little story I want to share with everyone is how we ended up reconnecting, which is almost a miracle in itself because you and I have both started going under, if you will, pseudonyms. And I was reading about Janice Joplin online because I was a big fan of hers. And I came across this story that was written by you, which I didn't know at the time, which was this story about going to see Dick Cavett in New York with your friend and how we went because I was a big fan of Janice Joplin's. We both were. Yeah. And this wonderful little story about the notes passing between Janice and I that I didn't get. and, and, Then many years later, we reconnected because I wrote to you online and said, wait a minute, I don't recognize the name, but is that you? (laughs) Well, it would almost
1: have to be because who else would know that Janice Joplin threw a note clip to a pen? up to the balcony in the All Dick right. Cavett show, and it got All hung right. up in one of the light bulbs. I mean, who else knows
0: that? So it's been wonderful that we've <laughs> reconnected and to learn about what you're doing. And we've since gotten together, and I've really been enjoying your books immensely. I can't tell you how much I've been enjoying them.
1: Oh, good. Thank you.
0: So l- let's talk about Pay It Forward, just because everybody knows Pay It Forward. And
1: because it was a movie, because unfortunately, we're living in a society that values movies over books. Sorry, I had to say that there. I've said it.
0: But there's still enough of us that like books more than movies. So I want you to, I mean, I think you've told this story a million times, but just for our listeners, if you could tell the story about how Pay It Forward came to be, and your story with the Dotson and living in LA. And if you could just reiterate that a little bit,
1: Holy cow, I hope you want the short version because that's where all we're going to have time well, for. Well, tell the short one then. Okay. I was living in um, a very bad section of L.A. Yeah. And I was I was um, in a line of work. I was doing dog training in people's homes. And uh, so I, I'm out there by myself driving all over, coming home late in the evening. And the car stalls, which it tends to because I wasn't very good about taking it to the mechanic, As I go to start it up, I notice that there's this curl of smoke coming up underneath the dashboard. Never a good sign when you're driving. So I jump out, and I see these two men who've pulled their car over, and they're running in my direction very fast, and one of them is carrying a blanket. Now, this is not the best neighborhood, so my immediate thought is, I am going to die. This is the moment I die. Mm. And what happened instead is one of them went around me, reached in, popped the hood, and the other one put the fire out by hand with his own blanket. Which is
0: quite amazing.
1: It's very amazing, considering I had never seen these guys before in my life. Apparently, they had seen the trouble that I was in and pulled their own car over and decided that they were going to bail me out of this. Right around the time the fire was out, the fire department showed up, which is interesting because we didn't call them. And this is before cell phones. I think somebody who was going uh, by behind me on the freeway must have stopped at a call box and called my fire in for me. So I'm having a conversation with the uh, fire department about how the fire started and et cetera, et cetera. And I turn around to thank these guys, and I did not notice or realize that they had already gotten in their car and driven away. So I never said thank you to them, which I very much regretted. Um, I knew I would never see them again because L.A. is not that small a town. And I found myself driving around. um, I actually managed to put that car back together. Wow. They, They had been there so quickly to put it out that I just had to replace a few damaged parts. And I don't know what I would have done for work if I couldn't have driven. So anyway, so I'm driving around after that. With this question in my mind, what do you do with a favor that big if you can't pay it back? And though that kind of observation is what led me to the book because I'm driving down the freeway and I've got one eye on the side of the road and I'm looking for somebody broken down so that I could help them. Obviously, I had never done that before. So what was it about getting an act of kindness that turned me into a person who wanted to give an act of kindness? And I started wondering, how big could a thing like that get if this is a natural human reaction? Which, by the way, it turns out it is. There have been actual scientific studies since then. Not only that a person who has received an
0: act of kindness. Their human reaction or your reaction to what they did?
1: No, I'm talking about a person's reaction when they have received an unexpected kindness. Okay. And how it turns them into somebody who is that much more likely to want to give an act of kindness. And it's actually been proven that that not only works on the recipient of the kindness, but even people who witness it are that much more likely to turn around and Mm be giving. So it kind of makes you wonder if you could insert this into society and end up with something a little better than what we've currently
0: got. Right. Well, you know, I think we've discussed that this is the beginning of a series of episodes on civility that we're doing. I was just Mm -hmm. thinking about at the beginning of the pandemic, we were going to take a walk, and I just happened to look up, and I saw this man on the second-story balcony fall headfirst to the ground. And he was just on the ground with his head against the ground in a kind of U shape. And I thought, Oh. oh my God, this man is dead. You know? So I immediately ran out of the car and I yelled to Rob and he came over. And this other guy came running over with a little dog who happened to be a nurse. Wow. How often is that going to happen? And the guy started moaning. So we knew he was alive, but I thought his neck was broken. And it turned out he had, I can't remember, like seven different bones in his body were broken. But the amount of people who came over trying to figure out what to do was, especially when COVID was starting to rage and everyone is afraid to be near anyone, was a Mm -hmm. really wonderful act of kindness that I thought, well, I didn't look at it so much about from what I did but that it existed in a more universal way in that moment was a promising thing to me because especially as COVID went on and things didn't look so nice and people were getting more and more rude to each other. What, what we mm-hmm. experienced there was people reacting with kindness um, in a reactionary way, you know, to an emergency, but in Pay It Forward, it's it's a much more proactive thing that we're talking about. Let's go to the actual book. This story is about this young boy Trevor, who's in junior high school, correct? I think he was he was twelve when the book
1: started, fourteen. So when he he's old. in
0: social studies class, and the teacher gives them an assignment to write an essay, an idea that would make a great change in the world.
1: Right. Th- think of an idea for world change and put
0: it in. So Trevor action. comes up with this idea of doing something nice for someone, and then only asking that they do it for three more people in return, whatever that is—giving them a lift or mowing mm-hmm. their lawn, like Trevor does for one of the characters in the book, or helping buy a vehicle or whatever it is. And in your books, like this book, you tend to like to use characters that are very um damaged, damaged. but. Also more working class people who are going through those struggles that seem to be around every corner. And definitely like his social studies teacher, this Vietnam vet who was maimed in the war and is very insecure about that. And he's African-American. And Trevor's mother, she's a single mom and she um, is struggling with having been an alcoholic herself. So there, there's all these reasons in the world for Trevor to think much less positively about life. Uh, potentially, but uh, there's well, there are a couple reasons that I uh,
1: put this in terms of a lot of damaged characters. And one of them is because I don't really see why we should waste fictional salvation on people who were doing pretty well to begin with. But also in terms of Trevor having this kind of rough upbringing with his father gone. And his mother struggling with alcoholism is that I've noticed that when kids grow up rough like that, when the adults who are supposed to be in charge don't really seem to be in charge, what happens is I think the kids kind of grow up faster. They kind of step into an adult role and try to put everything right, which makes for a very different kind of character than a kid whose parents are doing a really good job and they get to just go to school and play and be a kid for a while longer. Does that make sense? Oh,
0: absolutely makes sense. I mean, I recognize my own upbringing in what you described there and how I pretty much set out on my own at a very early age and left all that behind. Because I just didn't, not that my parents weren't loving, but I just didn't feel supported at all. And that it was time to do it. But, you know, when you're in those situations, I mean, Trevor is like this incredibly positive, loving kid. And he doesn't seem to be affected by the bad that's going on around him. And there's a fair amount of Mm it.
1: I think he's affected by it. I just think that he has his eye on change. He just has his eye on how things can be more positive. I happen to believe that we, are, that we are born optimistic and that we're born wanting to help others and that we unlearn it along the way. That's my personal belief. We learn to be afraid of each other and hold back. and
0: But when Trevor goes hurt. out there with his plan and he decides that he's going to do these things and he does them kind of selflessly... Yeah. But at the same time, when he starts realizing that people aren't, or he's assuming that people aren't doing it. Right. He does get discouraged. discouraged. So yeah. is there a lesson in that about don't have expectations about the good you do in life?
1: Yeah, I think there is. I think there is. I think um, people, are, people are too keyed into like an immediate mm-hmm. return. Like, they want to help somebody and either have something wonderful happen to them or really just watch that person's world transform. And I think it's really important that people put good out into the world, but let go of what it does right. out there. Just focus on what they're doing. Because, you know, like, for example, I had a teacher when I was at Bennett High School when I was... uh a sophomore. I don't know if you remember Lenny Horowitz.
0: I kind of do. I read what you wrote about him in your book The Steep Path, but obviously he didn't have the same impression on me as he did on you, which was tremendous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he helped me a lot and he, he encouraged uh me to believe that I that I wrote well. Uh which was a very new experience for me to get like positive feedback on something that I That I do well. And, but he died just a couple of years after I left Buffalo. He had Hodgkin's disease. And so he put all this into encouraging me. And all I was doing for the rest of his lifetime was just floundering around with alcohol and drugs, which I no longer do. Right. And so imagine if he had only based his feelings about what he did for me on exactly the results that he saw. I mean, not only might you not get the results that you're hoping for when you help somebody, you may get them and not even know it. You may be putting something in the back of their head that's going to blossom years later. You know, just, As in your case. I just think, yeah, I just think that if people get too hung up on the results of what they do, they're going to get discouraged and decide this isn't working
0: and it's not about that at all i get that
1: i don't think it's about that i like to tell people if you if you go out and do three acts of kindness today i guarantee you you will have changed the world by three acts of kindness no matter how they turn out now if everybody did that that would be a big deal that would make today different from other days
0: i agree it absolutely would You know, it's interesting. In the survey we're conducting on civility, we're finding that incivility is a huge issue across the board with people from across the spectrum, no matter what your political beliefs are. People believe that incivility is a big problem. In fact, this morning, I was just reading about yet another flight attendant who was punched in the face for no good reason. Not that there's ever a good reason to punch somebody in the face. No. No, there isn't. How do you think, sticking to pay it forward for another minute, how do you think we can, I mean, are there things that we should look for to make these things happen? Or is it is it just holding the intention of paying it forward? Or if people want to know, like, how do I do this? you know, how do I look for these situations? Where can I look for them? Or do you just have to be aware that they might come along?
1: I think it's better to just pay attention to the people around you. And when something comes up or someone needs someone, uh, something, you'll know it, right? You'll see it. Um, Yes, I think incivility is a problem, and I, I happen to believe that human nature is like two sides of, of the same coin. One is not bigger than the other. As much as we are capable of being good, we are capable of being horrible to each other. And the world is, is equally a wonderful and terrible place. And now I think our challenge is, where are we going to put the bulk of our attention? And when we decide that we're going to help somebody today, we're shifting our attention to what's right in the world, which is an improvement. The more we focus on what's wrong, the more we're just filling our head with how horrible things are. It, it'll get horrible. I absolutely
0: there. agree. And the interesting thing for me through doing all the research we've been doing about civility and incivility Is recognizing myself as not the saint that I think I am when it comes to civility, you know, that there are a number of instances I can think of where I was not civil, you know, where I did something rude or I was out of line or something like that in my life. And it's been a really eye-opening experience for me to see that, to recognize and acknowledge that I'm not perfect and that I have the ability to be just as uncivil as the next person does. I wanted to ask you about the ending, or almost the ending of Pay It Forward, where Trevor and his mother and his social studies teacher are invited to the White House because of what this one boy has done to create such amazing change in the world, especially Mm -hmm. in the United States. And while he's there, he sees the citizen in distress and he goes to help them and ends up dead. And then there's a big Mm -hmm. candlelight procession afterwards in his honor, but I want to focus on when he goes to help this person, being a good Samaritan to help someone and he ends up dead. What is the message in that?
1: Um okay as far as I'm concerned I don't honestly believe that the whole world would have changed which it which in the book it did um if people had not been shaken in their faith I mean how can I how can I say okay this little boy does these cool things and he helps people and the president pats him on the head for it and the whole world decides to change does that feel realistic to you? I mean, that's a little news soundbite that'll be gone in twenty right. minutes. It'll be out of people's heads. But to be in this situation where everybody's looking at this kid and going, "Oh, that couldn't work, could it? No, nah, that couldn't work." And then all of a sudden, the whole that the idea gets kind of pulled out from under people's feet, and then they come together for this memorial. For this boy and have this idea presented to them, you know, you're out in the audience trying to figure out does that mean the pay it forward idea is dead? Well, only if you let it be. Like the question is, will people really do it? And your people, so tell me, will you really do it? Meanwhile, this thing is being broadcast on television, blah, 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 because this tragic thing happened. My understanding of human nature is that we do not make big sweeping changes until something wakes us the F Right, up. right. And then we reconsider everything. Until then, we focus on these little teeny problems that really amount to nothing and think they mean something. I
0: think you're absolutely right. Uh, usually, the good only comes out of the bad, you know, basically.
1: Yeah. And ideally, if you're not 13 or 14, you know to call the police in a situation like that and not charge in yourself. But here you've got a kid who just pitches in in an unwise way. So I'm certainly not suggesting that that's how people should pay it forward. No. That's that's a kids don't try this at home kind of a thing. Right.
0: But do you think that the pay it forward idea that Trevor began back then is still relevant today? Or has the world changed since you wrote the book? Do you think it's still possible for Pay It Forward to be a living, breathing thing again? Well, it is a living, breathing thing.
1: You hear about it okay. all the time. Well, I hear about it all the time, but that's probably because people bring it, bring these stories to me. Right. People are doing Pay It Forward favors for each other all the time. And I actually think that, the more the world falls into disarray, and the more we're at each other's throats, the more relevant this becomes.
0: Are you surprised by the longevity of it?
1: Yes, you are. Oh yeah, I'm surprised that anybody ever really played at it in the first place. And I kind of figured when they first started doing that, it that it was because uh, the book was in bookstores and the movie was in theaters, and when they, I thought it was that kind of publicity driving it. But it's 22 years later, and I'm still hearing these stories of people getting their meals paid for or somebody getting their tire changed by the side of the road and being told, pay it forward. So.
0: Well, it's interesting because in prepping for this episode, people would ask me, oh, what are you working on now? And I would say you and pay it forward, and they knew exactly what I was talking about.
1: I think most people do, yeah. I think it's very rare to run into somebody who's never heard of the
0: concept. It's wonderful because it's such a positive thing. And it's still very much in people's minds. You said that you still get emails and have heard people telling you stories about Pay It Forward. Can you share any of those? Somebody just contacted me on Facebook just a few. It
1: could have been more than a week ago. I think it had something to do with somebody buying buying their meal for them um it's really it's small things you know somebody's somebody's got a a car repair and they get the bill and it says that it was already paid by somebody else you know it's i read things in the the paper sometimes they come through on a, a google alert because sometimes the person who wrote the story mentions the book and my name so one thing that's that is still going on are those uh those long chains where somebody goes through a drive-through window and pays for the person behind Oh yeah.
0: Them.
1: And and it keeps going for seven or eight hours until the business closes. I've heard people disparage those because they say, well nobody's really gaining. I mean everybody's paying and, you know, they're just paying for somebody else. But I actually think that it is good for the following reason every single one of those people is presented with an opportunity to take what they were given and put it in their pocket and drive away each person chooses do i want to take this and give nothing or do i want to give back and the answer seems to be that people want to pass it on
0: do you think it's a matter of people being asked to do it No, I
1: don't think it's asked to do it. I think, I don't think, okay, pay it forward isn't about somebody asks you to do something and you do it. That's not really what it's about. It's about someone spontaneously doing something for you. And then you have that moment where you go, well, do I want to do the same? And the fact that you got that spontaneous act of kindness does seem to influence a person's thinking about passing the kindness on. And then they can just order the food and leave. Or they can choose to do the same for the person behind them. And in every situation that I've heard of, the the line has kept going. The chain has kept going until the business closed that night, which is encouraging. Phenomenal.
0: Yeah. It really is quite wonderful. So on the topic of civility, I want to move on to another book of yours, have you seen Luis Velez? Oh, I have yeah. to say, I think it's one of the best books I have ever read.
1: Oh, thank you. It's one of my favorites of
0: my own. I, I had to stop several times because it made me so emotional. Wow. I just had to stop. I And I was, it's funny because it's not like I've been in any of those situations that a Raymond goes through or Millie talks about, but those are the two main characters in the book uh but i felt you know i can't i still can't describe what i feel Mm -hmm. it's so emotional when i think about that story other than they are very compassionate people that you just want to good to happen for them you become wrapped up in Mm -hmm. their struggles to do the right thing to do good Just so our listeners can know what we're talking about here, can you give us just a brief description of have you seen Luis Velez?
1: Yeah. Um, uh, Raymond, who's our viewpoint character, is I think 16, 17 years old when the book begins. And there's an old woman in her 90s, almost completely blind, who lives a floor or two down from him whose caretaker has disappeared she had a like a volunteer named louise velez who used to come look in on her three times a week and help her go to the bank and do her shopping and you know and she doesn't know why he stopped coming and when raymond finds that, and everybody's just walking right by this woman not wanting to get involved she'll come out in the hall and say do you know louise velez have you seen him Uh, And everybody just thinks she's a crazy old lady and ignores her. Raymond gets involved and um, walks her to the store to buy food. And then as they get to know each other, he starts taking on uh, that he's going to see if he can't find out what happened to Luis Velez. Uh, Kind of knowing that if something terrible has happened to him, that's going to be an awful thing to have to tell her. But if he just didn't care as much about her as she thought he did, that would be pretty awful too. And of course, I don't wanna do a spoiler on what it turns out to be, but the, the biggest part of the story is the connection between these two people.
0: So what Raymond does then is he goes to the phone book and starts calling and then visiting all the Luis Velazas that he can find. He starts meeting all of these different people, and they are very different. One is a lawyer who's done very well for himself, very successful, and he's married, and they're supportive of what he's doing. Most of them, yeah, not all. Right. There is this one scary Luis Velez that he meets in the Bronx. He's a darker character and very threatening and intimidating to Raymond, and Raymond can't wait to get back to the subway station and get out of there. Mm Mm-hmm. But then he meets another Louise and his wife who uh, invite him to dinner and they give him a medal of St. Jude who is the saint of hopeless causes, lost causes. And it is starting to look like a lost cause. He's spending his allowance that he gets from his father to go to these places. And he's also spending his allowance to buy things for Millie that she doesn't have. And there's a cat in the story too, which Raymond rescued.
1: I was going to say he's buying things for the cat, so she's not burdened taking care of the cat.
0: And he rescued the cat. So he's this kind of wonderful boy that I'd be proud to have as my son. Raymond is the epitome of civility and kindness, even in situations where he could easily be the opposite of that. He manages to have this core in him that is of goodness, And it's totally believable that he is this way. It's not like, eh, I don't think he could ever be that way. You know, nobody's that good. But he really is that good. And he's also struggling with his own identity and doesn't even realize the good things that he does as being good things. Going to see these different Luis Velez's is also his journey, if you would, into adulthood.
1: Yeah, I think he could say
0: that. Because he's learning so much about life. So what he finds out is that Louise Velez has been shot dead on the street in the midst of being a good Samaritan, a good civilian. He's shot by a woman who thinks that he's a danger to her when all he's trying to do is return her wallet. And when they go to court, it seems like all the facts point towards this woman being guilty. And she's a white woman, and she's not working class or anything like that. She's what you would call an upstanding citizen in some people's eyes, and in the trial, she gets acquitted. And for for Raymond especially, this is a huge thing because he just doesn't understand how this could happen. How with all the facts in front of the jury, that they still decided that she should be acquitted. Now... The reason I'm talking about all this in relation to civility is that Raymond goes back to the prosecuting attorney to ask what went wrong. The attorney starts talking about tribalism. And so he gives Raymond a quick lesson in what tribalism is. So I want to know more about your views about tribalism in relation to civility.
1: Okay, here's... Here's my concept of tribalism in a nutshell. Here's how I understand it. We, which is, of course, a very amorphous term, however you define we, the people who feel like me, we are good people. We are by definition, our tribe is by definition good people. So if one of us does something wrong, it's, it's, they're still a good person. You have to understand, they're still good, like, they made a mistake or whatever, but they're basically a good person because they're us. They are dangerous. And when they make a mistake, it just proves what we've been saying all along about how dangerous they are. And this is why you'll, you'll have uh, attorneys get up in court for a bunch of young white kids who did some outrageous thing. And he'll, he'll talk about this great future that they have. And what a shame it would be to mess up this great future. Hey, they just made a mistake. And yet when a young black or Hispanic defendant is sitting in the same court, people don't say, hey, this is a great kid who just made a mistake. They just think, okay, this is a threat. So this woman's walking down the street. She can see in the shop windows behind her that this very large Hispanic man is getting closer and closer to her. Obviously, she didn't wake up that morning planning to kill anybody. And that goes without saying. But as the prosecuting attorney pointed out, if you're going to own a gun and use it in self defense, if you're going to turn around and shoot somebody because you think they're a threat to you, you got to be right. You got to at least tell somebody a convincing version of why you thought your life was about to be over. And, of course, we don't think that that happened in this court case. But the jury, as the prosecutor pointed out, understood how it felt to be the woman, the shooter, better than they understood how it
0: felt to be Louise Veloz. So isn't that where we are today in our society? Yeah, Oh yeah, that's why I wrote
1: the book. That's exactly why I took on this topic when I did.
0: Killing someone obviously is in a situation like that is the epitome of uncivil behavior. Yes. And groups of people will make that I don't even want to go to <laughs> I don't even want to go to our ex president or anything like that. I just don't want to go there.
1: Well, I wrote it at the beginning of his term and I had some things to say about where I thought we were getting off track. Because he was not the civility president, let's face it. No,
0: no, he wasn't at all. And I'm wondering, do you think it's the kind of thing we can come back from? Or is it going to be like what you were saying, for example, going back to pay it forward when Trevor goes to do a good deed and he ends up dead? Is it going to take something huge and disastrous? Because throughout the last presidency, I would say, Oh, well, that's going to sink him right there. That's going to sink him right there. Do you know what I'm saying? And it just never, yeah, it never did. I want to talk about social media and civility. In our civility survey, one of the things that people say very much in unison, I think it's 85% so far, say that social media is one of the biggest causes of incivility in society.
1: Yeah, I think that's part of it, yeah.
0: You're on social media. Do you get a lot of negativity back at you? Because you're pretty much open about how you feel about everything. Yeah. Well, on Twitter, I am.
1: On Facebook, I don't get into politics. I figure that way people can choose how much of me they want to hear. I do fine on social media. What I do is if if I just have somebody kind of trolling me come after me, I just mute them. I don't even block them. I just mute them. And I just picture them kind of shouting into the void, wondering why they can't get a rise out of me. I just don't. I don't fight with people I don't know on the internet. I just don't. If they come wanting a fight, I just cut it off right there. I just don't even. Life is too short. It absolutely
0: is too short.
1: And I end up being surrounded by people who, you know, hear what I'm saying. I mean, they, they make they may have a civil argument to be made with something that I put out, but, you know, it's not uh, its not a problem. And in
0: your writing, you sort of do the same thing. When you write about these very difficult and often controversial subjects, uh, you do it in a way that's easy on the brain, that doesn't cause offense. So that the reader doesn't necessarily get riled by what you're saying. You think about it the reader or listener is more open to the words that you're writing in your stories. And they, you know, they're just more open to things that are not part of their everyday lives, like interracial relationships or someone who's gay or the problems that come up from systemic racism that we're all part of. Which brings us to uh, your Latest book, Boy Underground, uh, which came out in December. And in the book, there are four boys who become friends. Stephen is the son of landowners, and the other three are sons of farm workers, one a migrant farm worker, basically. And the story really starts when these boys go up on a hike into the Sierra in December in 1941. And Stephen is beginning to realize that his attraction is more towards boys. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't let on about it at all.
1: No, you pretty much didn't in 1941 in a small town, yeah.
0: But he feels much more um, at home with these boys than he does with boys who would be really considered his social peers at that time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they go on this very difficult hike up into the Sierra and Stephen is finding that he's attracted to Nick who is kind of big and handsome and very uh how would you describe Nick
1: Nick um he's 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 very faithful he's uh very protective of the people that he loves he's from a a, a difficult home He just lives with his father, and his father's kind of a piece of work. And uh, I think he's he's very caring.
0: Yeah, there's something very stable, solid about Nick's character. So when they're up there, they camp by a mountain lake, and Nick does this kind of run-and-jump barrel dive into the lake. It's freezing cold, and Nick's encouraging Stephen to dive in, too. And so Stephen finally gets up his nerve to jump into this icy cold water. And when he does, he basically sinks to the bottom.
1: Yeah, he pretty much drowns. Yeah,
0: (laughs) He goes straight down and he realizes that he's, he's drowning. Then Nick realizes he's drowning and jumps in and saves Stephen. Hauls him out of there, yeah. This makes Stephen even more enamored with Nick. And you're going to read a passage for us out of Boy Underground that picks up the story after this happened.
1: I am. This is later that same night uh, when he, uh, they're, they're actually all sleeping in one four-man tent, which it turns out is not as big as Stephen assumed it would be. And he wakes up in the middle of the night, and uh, and Suki and Ollie are in the tent with him, and Nick isn't. So uh he steps out to see where Nick is. As my eyes adjusted to the light, I saw the soft, dim shape of Nick's back. He was sitting halfway between our tent and the lake, apparently just gazing off into the distance. I picked my way to where he sat, and he turned his head when he heard me. I sat by his side, easing my crampy legs into a new position in the midst of all that magic. For a time, we said nothing at all. Then he said, glad you're okay. He put his big arm around my shoulder. It was a thing like a smile, he flashed me before we set off hiking. It was a might be. I wanted to answer, but I had no idea what to say. Have you ever seen anything more beautiful, he asked. Never, I said, not once in my whole life. We sat a while longer. The clouds moved off in the direction of home, leaving the stars brilliantly clear. Of course, they took the snow with them. But by starlight, I could see a faint dusting of it all around our crossed legs and sugaring the banks of the lake in its perfect reflection of the universe. I'm really sorry about yesterday, he said. Not your fault. I was the one who decided to go in. I waited to see what he would say, but he seemed to have lost himself in the magic again. Know what's weird, I asked him. Know what? Yesterday, the whole trip seemed so terrible. The walking was really hard, even though I didn't want to say so. And then I was so humiliated that I couldn't even jump into some cold water without drowning. Everything just felt so miserable. And now I wake up, and it's the most perfect experience I've ever had. And I already know that when I look back on it, all I'll remember is this. It's just strange to me how things change so fast. He only waited when I was done, maybe to see if there was more. Then in time, he said, yeah. Life changes fast. Looking back, these were oddly prophetic sentiments, but we didn't know. In that brilliant and memorable moment, we didn't know. Now I know that in a couple of hours, right around the time the tavern closed in town, Nick's father would get into a bar fight that would leave a man in a coma and hovering at the edge of death. Now I know that as we sat gazing into heaven, Nick's arm draped around my shoulder, Japanese planes were on their way to their surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, drawing our country into the war and turning Suki's life on its head pretty much forever. Now I know that in a few months' time, construction would begin on a camp called Manzadar, in a spot we would have been staring down on if not for the higher mountains in our field of view, to intern the Japanese who were no longer welcome in free society anywhere in the western states. At the time, we honestly believed everything was perfect. That kind of sets it off, I would think.
0: So from there, when they come down the hill, they discover that Nick's father has beaten a man so severely that he's in a coma. And he tells the police that Nick did it, even though Stephen knows it wasn't Nick. Mm -hmm. And so Stephen offers to hide Nick in a root cellar that's on the farm that his parents own, which is way off in the distance and not near anything and not being used so he could hide there. So Nick ends up living in this root cellar for months and months, and it ties these two boys together forever, basically. And when Suki, Stephen's Japanese-American friend, ends up having to leave to go to Manzanar with his family, he comes to Stephen's home and asks Stephen if he can take care of Akira, Suki's grandmother's dog. And so Stephen takes Akira and gives him to Nick to be company for him in the root cellar. As time goes on, Stephen becomes bolder and bolder. In fact, he goes to see Nick's father in jail to find out why Nick's father was blaming him for what happened. At the same time, Stephen also starts being treated not so nicely by the community because he's very open about the fact that Suki is his friend and that he cares for Suki and Suki's family and refuses to turn on him. Yeah, he
1: won't turn on Suki. And he's supposed to. He's supposed to at that point.
0: Right. He's supposed to, like Mm -hmm. everybody else is, turning on these people who were their neighbors and their friends. So there's constantly the theme in your books about civility and how people treat each other. First of all is the incivility of sending all these people away who are Americans to a camp, and also seeing what Stephen goes through for his beliefs. When we were coming up with our ideas of who do we want to talk to about this issue of civility, you are one of the people that we really wanted to talk to. Oh, well, that's nice. Because your writing is always dealing with issues like that. How, are, how do we treat each other? Are, are we kind to each other or cruel to each other? And if it's easy to do better, why don't we? So why don't we?
1: Um, my personal theory is that we're afraid of each other. We're just afraid of each other. And, you know, some of us are able to have empathy for people as a whole. And some of us, it seems to me, are only able to have empathy for people who really remind us of ourselves. It's like two different kinds of empathy. Yeah,
0: when you're trying to improve things, you can't expect to change anyone, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Right. That's what Stephen's character is all about, is that you should do what you think is right.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to somebody about this not an hour before I came on this broadcast. I was talking about being honest, reflecting honestly back to someone that their behavior was wrong for you or hurtful to you or disruptive of you know to you instead of just saying nothing and my friend who I was talking to said you know is is it your thought that it will change this person and i said no it's not about changing this person it's about a person comes to me and looks at me like i'm a mirror reflecting their own behavior back to them And what I want to do is give an accurate reflection. I I see people all the time not saying to someone, wow, that's really offensive what you just said, or that was very hurtful, because they say, oh, well, you can't change anybody. No, you can't change anybody, but you can accurately reflect back to them that their behavior is a problem for other people, and then they're going to do with that what they will. And I don't think that it is... I don't think that it is uncivil to say to someone, I don't like what you just said. I don't think it is at
0: all. It's interesting. Yesterday, I was watching a video by the American College of Trial Lawyers, their civility initiative project, which is lawyers talking about civility, basically civility amongst other lawyers and in the courtroom and with judges and clients and There was a couple of things that came up. One is that civility is often looked at as a sign of weakness.
1: Yes, by some people, yeah.
0: To be civil means to be weak. For example, there was a woman who was talking about her early years as a lawyer and that being a female lawyer to her meant she basically had to be uncivil to show power as a woman, that she had to be rude to people and that she had to be outspoken all these things that are basically negative and that came out of how she was being treated by male lawyers statements like do you really feel comfortable being here is this really the place for you as a lawyer or remarks about what she was wearing or things like that and i think for women it's much more of an issue than it is for men finding their place in civility professionally I was just shocked to hear how much professionally Mm -hmm. civility is an issue. I tend to think about it in more terms like, you know, when you're walking down the street or at the supermarket or driving in our cars. But do you think it's more of a problem for women's civility than it is for men?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. I think, I think, uh, when a man says something, um, kind of, really speaks out not necessarily in an angry way but just says something like please don't treat me that way it's seen as a strength and with women it's 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 disparaged i think the problem is people mistake kindness and niceness a person can be kind to me kindness is like a genuine thing and niceness is when you say oh that's okay when it isn't because you think you're only supposed to say positive things i don't think we are only supposed to say positive things i think we're supposed to be as kind to people as we can until they step on us and then we need to say excuse me you are standing on my foot please move and i think women particularly have been taught no just stand there and smile and and wait for the guy to move off your foot and to me that's more like codependence than it is a genuine kindness it's like i don't think i have the right to speak the older i get the more i think i have a right to speak now the way i do it i don't i don't curse at people i don't make it like like their problem like the problem with you is i just say hey here's how i feel about what just happened
0: but it's interesting in your book the steep path, you were talking about driving on the road and how often people, that you go the speed limit, and yeah. that often people are so close behind you that you can't even see their headlights. Rob Wilson and I were talking, Rob, who produces and directs the podcast, we're talking about how the norm has become to do the things that are actually wrong or illegal. Yeah. It's okay, as opposed to following the rules.
1: Everybody speeds. Not everybody, but close enough to everybody that you can draw a lot of ire by not doing it.
0: And, and that it's okay. I mean, we, we went through this whole thing of while we were walking about looking at the number of people who don't stop at stop signs.
1: Oh, tell me about And it. they
0: think it's okay to do that. Yeah. And once they see one person do it, another does it, and another does it, and another. It's kind of the opposite of the pay it forward at the drive through.
1: But it can be reversed also. I've noticed that if I stop for a minute and let, like if somebody's coming out of a driveway or something and there's a long line of traffic, if I stop and wave him ahead of me, I have actually seen it happen on more than one occasion that he'll do that for somebody else a couple of blocks down the road. So our behavior is contagious in both directions.
0: Right, exactly. Just one other thought that came up when I was watching the trial lawyers video. And it was about civility being sometimes recognizing that it's time to step back instead of engage.
1: Okay. Well, that's kind of what I was, I think that's what I was talking about when I said the trolls come after me on social media. Trolls will come to start a fight and I will do nothing. I will simply mute them. I do not engage. In
0: any way. Absolutely. So we're coming up to the end of our hour together, Catherine. So let's sum up civility in your writing, given the state of civility in America over the last few years. How much do you include that in your writing now?
1: A lot. It's a very, it it comes up in just about every book. It's the way we treat each other. And I mean, in terms of what we're going to do about it, I think it's just really important to remember that there's basically only one person we have control over, and that's us. It's amazing how often I see people agonizing over how they're going to change the world, and they never think about the fact that they could put something different out into the world.
0: For example?
1: Well, like paying it forward, like making up your mind, oh, today... I'm going to find a person or two people or three people and just do a favor for them. that They weren't expecting, they will be happier. You will be happier. And I'll tell you when you start focusing on what is good in the world, and there is quite a bit that's good and pull a little bit of focus off everything that's wrong. All of a sudden the world starts looking a lot better. You know, we, we just have to make a choice about where we're going to place our attention on what's wrong or on what's right. Because it's pretty much all we got, you know? It's what what we've got that we can control.
0: So, so true. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for your time and for talking with us. Oh, my pleasure. It's been really insightful and fun. Next time an opportunity comes up to pay it forward, I'll think of you. Okay. Thank
1: you very much. Bye-bye.
0: I have to say that this interview with Catherine, to me, is the perfect synthesis of literature and life. Her characters put into action what it means to be civil, to be compassionate, caring, and kind. And pay it forward seems like the perfect idea to put into practice at this time of year, don't you think? We're going to do our best to follow Catherine's example as we make civility the central theme of our future podcast episodes. Instead of feeding the negative, we hope to discover with you, our listeners, ways to make things better for all of us. In upcoming episodes, we'll be talking with people who have seen civility from both sides, those who have been hurt and turned around to help others. We agree with many of you who have taken our survey that civility is a serious issue, and we'll be searching for ways to turn cruelty into kindness. We would really appreciate your help with this effort. If you haven't already, please take a few minutes and take our survey, which you can find on our website at www.talkingboutourgeneration.com. That's talking without the G and about without the A. And please share this episode and our other episodes with your family and friends to help us get the word out. One last thing. The idea behind Pay It Forward is, if you've been fortunate financially, try to pass a little piece of that good fortune on. And we have to admit that producing this podcast has been a struggle. So, If you can afford to help keep this podcast alive, please visit our website and click on the support button to make a donation. We are extremely grateful and will definitely pay it forward. Happy holidays and stay safe, everyone. I'm Julian G. Simmons. Thanks for listening. This podcast includes copyrighted material which has not always been specifically authorized by the copyright owner. This content is used only where it is the specific subject of commentary by us and our guests as part of our effort to advance understanding of issues of social and historical significance. We believe that this constitutes a fair use of the material in accordance with the fair use section of US copyright law, section 107, which reads the fair use of a copyrighted work for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting teaching scholarship or research is not an infringement of copyright further information on this claim of fair use may be found on our website at talkingaboutourgeneration.com